From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with Pastor Todd Stanley. Hey, hey. Okay, so today I want to talk about three more roles of of a lead pastor. So we were talking, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about different roles that a pastor of over a congregation might have to have that are more specific than what you would normally think of when you think of pastor. And so the three that I want to talk about today are a pastor as fundraiser, pastor as creator of culture, and pastor of as congregational coach. So this first piece, this fundraiser piece, you know, it really struck me when I started learning about politicians and mm-hmm. how a huge amount of their work is fundraising yeah. and that you almost have to have access to tens of millions of dollars to <laughs> take office, any kind of significant office. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that that's a whole other conversation, but that may that's an unfortunate reality of our current political structure for sure. And so whenever we think about fundraising in the church, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, we have outreach, we have missions, we have things that kind of come through that, you know, we might give a platform to and say, hey, if you'd like to support this project, you can support these people. And then mm-hmm. there, there's kind of fundraising that way. What, what about as a lead pastor, should we be... Um, going out into the community and trying to fundraise or maybe another way of addressing this is like really getting into the the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of it is like, what should a giving moment look like in a church? Um, Because I think that, you know, we here at summit, that's pretty well thought out week to week, even just the giving moment. And you know, there's, there's like a, you know, that's, it's intentional. And so as a pastor listening to this, what would you say to them in terms of, if they're going to fundraise, maybe what are some things they should avoid? What are some things that work? And how should they handle giving moments in their church? Yeah, well, you know, uh, my experience in in ministry has mostly been in associated support roles. I was a lead pastor of a church for about three years, um, but mostly in, in supporting roles. And so uh, I have a, a limited amount of experience, to be honest, to speak into this. But the thing that I think any church that I've served in that's done this well, and Summit I think does it well, um, is that we we always connect giving to the why. It's easy for us to get lost in the weeds of the what and the how. Like, uh, you know, especially if you're in a small church, you know, small churches operate very much in, like families often. Uh, the average family, let's say, in the United States, in that you're essentially operating from paycheck to paycheck. Um, there, you know, uh, it's just the reality, and so it's easy to get focused on. We got to pay the light bill. We got to make sure the pastor and his family can eat if they're not bivocational. You know, uh, we've got uh, these missionaries we support. We got, you know, and and it's easy for us to to have to see all of the bills that have to be paid, so to speak, right? And lose sight of why it is that we exist and what it is that these funds actually are empowering. And so 
people aren't going to get all that excited about paying the light bill. Is it a necessity? Absolutely. Um, is it compelling? No. <laughs> uh, but what is compelling is seeing lives transformed for the cause of Christ, seeing people be saved and delivered and set free, and seeing the, the work of the gospel um, advancing in other parts of the world. And so if, if we can help people to be connected to that. And it, look, for us as pastors, it's a good reminder. You know, uh, man, th- there's a reason that we are asking people to give. There's a, there, and, and, and there's, you know, um, there's an investment to be made in things that are eternal. And so you have to connect it to those things, I think. And, uh, and so, you know, what we do at Summit is that every week, whoever, it, our, one of our staff members typically, um, there's a, a moment where we talk about giving, right? But what we will do every week is that we'll make sure that we're either telling a, a story uh, about something that's happened, a testimony, um, you know, something from Scripture that talks about why we give, and connecting that giving back to our mission as a church, which is to see every life made different uh, because of Jesus. And so uh, if we remain connected to that, I mean, people want to be connected to something bigger than themselves, and there's nothing (laughs) larger than us more than God and the kingdom of God. Yeah, I think remembering the why really helps a lot with um, potential feelings of guilt associated with being direct about asking for giving or yeah. like having a giving moment. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen some churches where their giving moment is very clandestine because it's like, you know, as soon as you see the, the plate being passed and maybe some music starts, then just everyone who goes to the mm-hmm. church all the time, they know that's the giving moment, but it's not really addressed from the platform. It's not like, okay, hey, this is this is our giving moment. This is where we're going to take up our tithes and offerings. I mean, some churches do it. Some, I think some probably avoid that intentional moment because of maybe maybe it's mode maybe they avoid it because of a sense of guilt. And I think that yeah. a lot of that can be alleviated. And they don't wanna they don't wanna sound like pitchy either or like they're you know, that they're really just after money or anything like that. But if continuously in the background, continuously reminding ourselves mm-hmm. about the why will help fuel those instances of fundraising where it's like, okay, no, it's it is okay to to ask for this. It yeah. is okay to bring attention to this. Yeah. Because, you know, and this is another element of fundraising that we can kind of unpack, but what you give your money to is what you is the where it, it, where it determines is, that's where your heart is that's what the scripture tells us right right and, and it, it determines the way your reality is going to be shaped in no small uh degree let's say like uh, say you have a corrupt corporation um that's doing all sorts of bad things in the culture doing all sorts of bad things in your country causing a lot of issues that you know you claim to care about but then you still give your money to the corporation yeah like that actually matters yeah. and there there you know we see it we we saw it the past two years uh, corporate America just just bending the knee to the cultural powers that be because they were afraid of uh, boycotts right and so right. there's a lot of power in where the funds are directed and so that's something I think that we could think about too is uh, as fundraisers, as as pointing attention to, hey, look, you know, you may not feel like giving your money to a church, but maybe you feel like living in a community that is characterized by healthy churches. 
And if you do, then <laughs> one of the greatest steps forward there would be to fund yeah. that movement. Well, and, and look, here's the thing as a pastor, I mean, maybe it's a good, not maybe, I think it's a good exercise for us to step back and really honestly evaluate and say, is my church doing gospel work? And it, is my church giving to other organizations and ministries that are engaged in gospel work? And if, if the answer to that question is no, if, if, the, if the giving really is just about we got to pay the water bill and the light bill and the mortgage and the... There, there's a problem there, you know? Um, and we need to evaluate that and step back and go, okay, you know, what, is, what are we existing for? And, uh, I mean, those, are, those can be really hard questions. Like, uh, we talk to pastors and we talk to churches sometimes that, that are in a place where, like, they are struggling just to keep those lights on and keep the water, you know, and whatever else, you know, just, um, and that's a, honestly, that's a time to start asking some really hard questions, Right. Uh, and, and, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that stuff today, but I mean, look, there's a very, there are very real circumstances in which you need to, to, to give a church a a good death as it were. Uh, if, if you're not able to engage in gospel work or partner with somebody else who can help to empower you to do that, um, and men, you know, I don't know that we have time to to unpack all of that stuff today, but whenever our giving becomes tied to our survival as an organization, then then not only are we not able to really do gospel work in our community and kingdom work in mm-hmm. our world, um, we we find ourselves in places where, honestly our vision for those things begins to diminish because we are, you know, being choked out by the weeds. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've heard Pastor Mel say before is that a church that should have died can continue on for a really long oh, time yeah. on fumes, you know, and just, it, and just barely making it week to week. Mm-hmm. And that can be uh, a terrible kind of cycle to get yourself stuck in. Uh, one of the things that is interesting here um, that we do is, and I, I don't think it's exclusive to Summit, but it's it's the uh, ninety day tithe challenge. And yeah. I, can we talk a little bit about the mechanics of that? Like, I one of the things that when I first heard about it that struck me was like, well, you'd have to have pretty good margins to be able to pull something like that off. I think because essentially what it's saying is that if you sign up to participate in the ninety day tithe challenge, then you're committing to tithe you know, your, your first fruits for 90 days. Right. And that if you don't, if, if, if at the end of that, you don't feel that God has, what, what, I don't want to get the phrasing wrong here, that God has blessed you and not in like a prosperity gospel sense, but like that it's, your giving is being honored, the, the right, fact right. that you're doing it, um, then you get all of it back mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah. Um, so what, how, how could a church pull something like that off? Do you have to have like a, a, an account set aside specifically for it? What does that look like? Uh, I mean, it, it depends on how healthy, financially healthy your church is at that point, really. I mean, if, if you are a church that's kind of existing Sunday to Sunday, um, yes, you would have to just put all of that aside for that 90 days and continue to l- live on, so to speak, what's been your standard giving. 
uh, if you're a church that's got reserves that you've built up and 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 have, then uh, it looks a little bit different. Um, but I mean, yes, at the end of the day, no matter where your church is financially, you have to be prepared for giving that back. So should someone ask? Yeah. Uh, I will say this: in all of my years of ministry, I've been at several churches who who've made the the 90 day guarantee, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never had anyone come back and ask for their money that's, back. Wow. That's, yeah, that's, so. that's really, that's really cool. So, uh, what, what is the purpose behind something like that? Because when I think about fundraising, that's a good example of not only fundraising, but what is it? It's like heart shaping. It's kind of like yeah. trying to teach person, give someone an object lesson or give someone like uh, something that they could follow, you know, like, uh, helping them along and learning how to give. Yeah. So, you know, churches are often accused of just wanting people's money. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, we've seen abuses where that's the case. But by and large, the vast majority of pastors and churches are honest and trustworthy and good stewards of the money that's being given so that they might see the kingdom of God advance. Uh, And the reality is that God promises a blessing for us when we give. And so you're just inviting people into that. You're not, you know, uh, yeah, you're just inviting people into that. And you find over and over and over and over that when we invest, you're, you know, again, we go back to what the scripture says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And so you, you, you said you use the phrase heart shaping. Absolutely. If I'm investing in things that advance the kingdom of God, then my heart will follow that and vice versa. If my heart is toward the kingdom, I'm going to want to give toward things that are advancing the kingdom. Um, and, and we take God at his word. It's part of the discipleship process even. Like part of, I mean, discipleship is about being made and shaped into the image of Jesus and into, uh, you know, what Scripture describes as someone who uh, is a follower of Jesus. And part of that is trusting God with our money. Part of that is living generously. And so whenever we encourage people to do that, uh, even with a a thing like this, where it's that 90-day guarantee, what we are, what we're saying as a church, first of all, is that we believe the word of God is true, and we enough so that we will guarantee to you that if your experience is not that God's blessing has followed your your obedience, then we'll give you all that money back. And so then we're encouraging people to to follow that same example. It's like we're as a church, we're trusting God, and so we're gonna ask you to trust God. And then, and then just believing that God's going to be who he is and show up and do what he said he would do. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I love how the, the church kind of guarantees that process. And, you know, it, it does show like a measure of authenticity of like, look, you know, we actually believe this. And so we want you to kind of participate in that. So, okay. So when it comes to fundraising, um, I notice something of attention and that is, um, there are individuals who either they have the capacity or the wealth to be exceptionally generous, or Mm -hmm. they're just able to be exceptionally generous for whatever reason. And they want to give to a particular project, but they want to be um, known 
that they're giving to that project. And so here's the thing that I, that I've kind of wondered about. I've been told before that it's unwise to allow an individual to give the majority share to a particular project, even if you don't publish the fact that they did that, just allowing them to do it at all, um, will kind of make them feel like, for instance, if you allow an individual to fund, you know, the, the, uh, renovation of the steps leading up to your church and one person just gives almost all the money to that well then those steps become their steps Uh and so that's kind of the the danger of it but at the same time uh there is a little bit of like a sense of pride i guess and i don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy in knowing that hey my generosity has made this happen whereas if you give to a general fund you don't really know where it goes. You don't really know where your your generosity has gone. So how do we balance that tension? Um, well, I think the question comes back to whether or not as a leader, you're willing to engage that well. So, you know, if, if someone wants to make, I mean, give generously toward, let's go, you know, with the steps, you know, to the, you need new steps to the front of your building. If there's someone in your congregation that wants to and has the capacity to to substantially get you down the road toward doing that, well, that's fine. But the question is, as a leader, whether should they, number one, start to think that they have say in how the steps get built or, you know, want a plaque on there memorializing them or somebody or whatever, you know, uh, do you as a leader have the wherewithal to say, no, that's not how this works? You know, if you're willing to engage that and not, not rudely, right. But if you're willing to engage that in a healthy way and help that person to, you know, to, to see, Hey, look, we don't give so that we might, the kingdom of God doesn't work that way. Like we don't, we don't wield power in the way that the world wields power. We don't wield influence in the way that the world wields influence. If you want to give toward this, great. But you must understand that that does not necessitate that it comes with uh, influence over how the process gets meted out. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're willing to engage that as a leader, then great. Or if you know that that person's heart is one of... I just want to advance the kingdom, you know. And so how do you balance that? Man, I don't I don't know that there's a a one size fits all for that. Right. It's got to be individual by individual. So speaking of engaging individuals for maybe the the promotion of the betterment or the health of the congregation, we think about pastors as creators of culture. Now, when I think about culture, church culture, I think okay, first of all, each church has its own culture in a way like there's things that are shared but there's nuances there's always like prominent members sort of powerful families like and you know we don't like to think of it that way but the reality on the ground is there's there's usually something like that happening in a lot of different churches okay so uh those things i think are influential over culture uh just the way that people engage you from the moment you walk in the door like is the place clean is the place Mm -hmm. kept up is it well maintained all that stuff is feeding into culture yes Uh, what kind of art is on the walls all of that stuff okay so what how important is culture in a church and what should be the the lead pastor's role in stewarding that culture 
And then we can talk about like maybe particular dangers that come up in culture after we sort of address those two questions. First of all, um, say you're pastoring a church and you're just really not the cultural type. Maybe you're not very artistic. You're not very creative. You don't think about those things. You're kind of just really all about business. What's the, what's the value in taking a step back and saying, Hey, even if I don't like culture, even if I don't really deal with that kind of stuff, it's important. Why is it important? And what maybe are some first steps that I could take in stewarding a culture? Well, the thing that I would first say is that none of those things are culture. Those are expressions of culture. Ah, that's interesting. Right? If as a pastor, as the leader, I am um, fostering a culture of vibrancy and life and vision for the future, all of these expressions will grow up around it. There's somebody in your church right now, there's a 15-year-old kid who loves to edit video. And if you create a culture as a leader that says, we, are, we want to move toward the future, we want to utilize every tool that's at our disposal, to that person will say, hey, I know how to do that. Can I do that? Or, or maybe you know that they are invested in that kind of thing. You, you, you've seen their TikToks or whatever. And you go to them as a pastor and say, hey, I, w- I see the capacity and the potential in you to use this for the glory of God. Uh, and can, I, can, can we do that together? You know, and you invite them into that. You don't, have to, you don't have to be able to do all of those things. What you want to be able to do as a pastor is to cast vision. So and and to allow those expressions of culture to begin to grow and to to rise up and then and you know uh we talk about as a staff sometimes we, when we're talking about raising up leaders in in our departments right on our teams um about having those i see in you conversations and as the uh, oh the curator is that the right word of culture as the you know as the person as the driver of culture in your church as the leader those are the things that you need to be doing you don't have to be the person who um who manufactures every expression of that culture you just have to be the person who's driving it and being willing to have those conversations i i see this in you i see this potential in you i see you you know and and then allow those things to grow so it's important then to operate from a principle of empowerment and then the principle of empowerment like let's just in this specific example with the the uh, 15 year old who loves video editing you'd have a principle of empowerment which would lead you to have that conversation which would then result in some really cool video Videos being made, but yeah. it's not that you're so. So the the cart before the horse situation that I started off there with was that it's not the way you shape culture is not necessarily the circumstances that you set up around yourself in order to produce culture. It's the principle that you then exercise and then you bring someone up. the The principle of empowerment could look like anything like it could look different from church to church but the culture of empowerment would be the same in each of those churches even though there are different expressions of it from church to church so you shouldn't be like a a pastor shouldn't be like okay well my church doesn't look like elevation so therefore i don't have a culture of empowerment yeah like that that would be a non-starter because the expression in your individual church is going to be different absolutely than other places but that doesn't mean that you don't have the healthy culture in place right. it just means that it looks different whenever it manifests yeah uh, you have to you have to measure the right things 
if I'm measuring, is my church cool? I'm measuring the wrong thing. If I'm measuring, are, are people being saved, right? Are, are, is the kingdom of God expanding here? Are people growing to be more like Christ? Are people sharing their faith with others? Are people, if I'm measuring those things, those that then then it doesn't matter what the expression of that culture looks like. It matters that that health and vibrancy is there. I mean, you can take look even in our city, you you could take Summit Church and one of the other churches across town. We look very very different. A Sunday service at at Summit looks very different than a than a Sunday service at Grace United Methodist right? But in both of those places, people are coming to know Christ. People are growing in faith. And, uh, and so, so in my estimation, there are healthy culture in both of those places, but the expression of it is very different. Yeah. Yeah. And that'll be dependent on who you have at your church too, and all of that. And then that's, that's a good thing. Like that, having that, that, uh, uniqueness about, your specific or the specific church that you're stewarding, um, I think, yeah, it would be a good thing for sure. So uh, when we think about dangers to culture, what would you say is maybe the most dangerous thing to culture? When I think about the most dangerous thing, probably what comes to mind is gossip. Um, I don't know if there's one worse than that. Um, It's hard to think of one worse than that. Maybe pride, uh, maybe lying uh, culture of, of deception, those sorts of things. When, when we're trying to say, uh, preserve a church against cultural decline, I think it's worthwhile to know what to look for, yeah. what, what to be like, you know, the things to, to, to be able to identify things that are like, okay, well, yeah, that's not great. I don't love that, but I'm going to set that aside versus things that are like, whoa, major red flag. I got to chase that down right now. So, here is the here is the thing that I think. I mean, obviously, like you talked about gossip or lying or deceit, you know, those are things that must be dealt with, right? But in terms of understanding and seeing the overall picture of church culture, whether it's one of health or decline, one thing are we focused on growing or maintaining? Is our focus outward or inward? Once our focus turns inward, we're done. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now that, that decline may, it may be a slow decline. It may be years and years from now, but if you look back, like if you look at a church that is, that is in, that is in the, the, the throes of death, right there, you know, that are, that you know barring a miracle it's not going to survive if you look at a church like that it's going to be years in the past mm-hmm. but there will be a point where where the if you dig deep enough where you'll be able to recognize okay here here's where they yeah. they turned here's where it changed from we want to reach our community we want to reach our world to we just want to maintain this Right there was there was a point at which the pastor decided, okay, um, I've got to keep the folks who are here happy, and then switched from you know 
a, a culture and a mindset that was focused on reaching those who were outside the walls of the church and, and helping them to know Jesus to keeping the folks who are in the pews happy so that going back to the financial thing, so that we can keep paying the light bills so that we can, pay, you know, whenever, whenever that happens, whatever that switch looks like, sometimes it's um, not a financial thing. Sometimes it's just, um, we begin to see ourselves as opposed to the world outside. Right. And so then we insulate ourselves uh, as a as a bastion of holiness or whatever, you know, whatever that switch is in our head. Right. That caused us to to stop focusing out and start looking in. When that happens, a church is in decline culturally. Yeah, yeah. that because it fuels all the other bad things, because like if you're thinking as a leader, okay, my number one priority is to keep these people happy. Then you're not going to call out things like lying. You're not going to call out things no. like gossip and pride and all of that. And no, then, and, and you start to uh, show favoritism toward those who are the big givers and, and they get an inordinate amount of influence, whether they uh, spiritually and, and character wise are worthy of it or not simply by virtue of their keeping the lights on, they get, they get a bigger say. They get to put their name on things and say, this belongs to me and that kind of thing. And you have an inordinate amount of power then that begins to rest with a particular family uh, that doesn't have anything to do with their influence in terms of, you know, advancing the gospel and that kind of thing. It has everything to do with their ability to maintain the organization and the status quo. Yeah, and one of the things I think that can really shift your culture to the better, to the positive or towards health is it's just a person, just the right person coming in. So for instance, if you're not outward focused anymore and you haven't had a new member in 10 years because of that shift, because you're now inward focused, well, there, there could have been 10 or 15 people who may have come in to, to this church otherwise who would have brought with them something that could have mm-hmm. led to a major cultural shift that would have been for the better. But yeah, like once you get all stultified like that, any cultural shift at all is perceived as a threat. And then it's like, because, you know, within the inward focused culture, you have the individuals have the who have the inordinate amount of influence and power, and they don't want to see a shift in culture because right. that then their power would be threatened. And so, yeah, I really like that, that watching out for that shift of, okay, what are we doing here? Why do we exist? And kind of, I mean, look at, that way. look at Jesus, right? Um, the thing that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were most afraid of in regard to Jesus, it wasn't the fact that he was doing miracles. It wasn't the fact that he was doing good things. It was the fact that um, his message was a threat to their status quo. If Jesus is the Messiah, then their claims to power begin to erode. Mm-hmm. If Jesus is the Messiah, then they have to lay down their influence. They have to lay down their authority and submit to his. We don't like mm-hmm. to lay down authority. We don't like to lay down influence. We don't like to to willingly take the second seat or the lower place. And so, so yeah, as a pastor... It is. It's tough to buck against that sometimes, uh, and and whether we want to admit it or not, we can, you know, fall prey to that same thing where we we don't want to uh, upset or push against the you know. But, but the question is whether or not we will 
obey God or whether we will obey man. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, and that may sound harsh, but that's really what it comes down to for us. Right, yeah. So when we're talking about um, establishing healthy culture and bringing in people from the outside, kind of growing that mindset, part of that, a lot of that involves coaching the congregation. And when I think about coaching, it's not really the same as teaching. Like there's some differences, I think, but maybe one of the most crucial points to coaching, at least from by my lights, is... Uh, and this is something that I've had a hard time learning how to do is allowing people to fail, allowing them to learn from their failure Mm -hmm. and like not really just surrendering control of the situation so that people can have space to grow. And so when that, when you're dealing with a congregation, you're trying to coach them, what are some, like, how, how would, how would you go about doing that? And what are some things like i think one of the things that that could really uh stifle that process is the desire to just make sure that everything's perfect all the time or make sure that you know there are no scandals in the church or anything like that anything that maybe someone from the outside might come in and be like oh that's embarrassing i don't want to come here you know like those are those things are uh fearful i think for church leadership like they, they don't want that to happen but at the same time um the process of trying to avoid that those kinds of breakdowns I think can lead to the inability to actually coach because the goal of coaching I think should be that you're establishing someone who's able to walk on their own at some point yeah um I mean I think it's one thing to assess and understand and know someone's character before you promote them versus uh you know, promoting someone um, who just needs to grow in the skills, right? So, for example, I I spent most of my ministry in 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 music, right? Uh, leading worship, leading worship teams, doing production, those kinds of things. Um, it's one thing for me to platform someone who has poor character. It's a completely different thing for me to platform someone who, let's say, isn't as good a guitar player or singer as me so that they might grow into that, right? And of course, you don't want to do that too early because you don't want them to be, you don't, you want them to be competent, right? Um, but, uh, well, Carrie Newhoff says it this way, if they have 50%, if they can do the job at 50% of what you're doing it at with the capacity to grow, then go ahead and give it to them, right? But that's a whole different prospect than character, right? If if I'm platforming people of poor character, well, I just haven't done a good job of, number one, uh, evaluating them, right? Knowing them, like, like, like let's really get down to what this is. I, I've not done a good job in relationship to know what they're their walk with Christ is like, to know what their life is like, to know, you know, so, so that's, that's, that's a breakdown on my part as a leader. Um, So, and then number two, I, I'm, maybe I haven't done the work pastorally to help them to grow in their character before I've platformed them. So, you know, so those, those, to me, those are two different things. If, if people have good character and if I've done that, my work as a pastor and as a shepherd to know their character and to help them grow in, uh, in, in their Christ-likeness, well, then I, I shouldn't have any fear of, of, of platforming them, right? Uh, that 
kind of, I don't want to say scandal proofs, but, you know, that, uh, that certainly uh, your, your potential for scandal is much smaller, right? If you, right. You, you know, but that's a whole different conversation, like I said, than, uh, you know, are they professional level musician? Yeah, so that I, I do appreciate the dichotomy between competence and character. Um, is it possible to coach someone's character? Like how, how, I mean, I'm assuming so because we have to allow for the improvement of a person's character or else mm-hmm. we're, you know, starting them at zero and keeping them at zero. Right. Um, and we don't want that. Is that like an active process as a pastor or is it more of like, I'm going to, I'm kind of going to sit back. I'm going to protect them from the things that I know they're not ready for and watch them grow or like how, how active is the process whenever it comes to coaching someone's character? I mean, I, I think the entire kingdom of God is built on this idea of mentorship. You know, Jesus mentored, mentored the disciples uh, and then he told them to go out and to do the same, uh, you know. And so, you know, there's, there's an apprenticeship that happens, that has to happen. That's why, you know, for for us at Summit, uh, and I'll just speak to the worship team again, because again, that's that's been where I've spent most of my time. Um, you don't get to be a member of the worship team. You don't get to be on the platform unless you are involved in a small group and giving and serving in some other area of the church before that, um, because we believe that those are, you know, primary, and those are measures of whether or not a person is engaged uh, in growing in their faith. And so, you know, uh, is it is it foolproof? No. Are are people going to be able to to fool you sometimes? Sure. People can hide, you know, um, in a one-on-one accountability relationship. People can lie and people can hide and and, and mask it. Eventually, it'll be found out, you know. Um, and so, you know, you, you certainly can't, you know, go into your shell and hide from the world and, you know, not ever uh, give anybody an opportunity because, you you know, you want to protect. You know, there's a, there's a balance that has to be there, but I think that there are ways to balance that. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, you do those things. You don't, you don't put anybody like... With our small groups, you, you can't lead a small group until you've gone through our membership process. You've been involved in a small group. Uh, we, I mean, uh, this isn't 100% of the time, but the majority of the time we require somebody to co-lead a small group before they're able to lead one on their own. They need to be serving again. They need to be giving. You know, we, we look at those things to say, okay, are they engaged in growing in Christ-likeness mm-hmm. in as much as we can measure that? And if they're not, they simply just don't, they don't get those places of influence and leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they are, then, you know, um, then we, we sit down and we talk with them and we, we ask them some questions and we get to know, you know, we ask for some references and we'll talk to people who know them, you know, we do due diligence. Yeah. And that, that protects the church and it protects the individual also from, you know, being put in a position that they're not ready for and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and we, we communicate too what, what our expectations are, whether it's our worship team or whether it's our small group leaders or there, there's a code of conduct. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, there are guidelines for what we believe our culture should be, what it should look like, uh, what, you know, 
what the the you know what the expectations are for our our conduct as followers of Christ, and then beyond that, what it what we believe that it means uh, in ter- for leaders, right? The the fact that we we have to live a life above reproach and what that looks like for us, and and there are things that maybe we ask and require of leaders that 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 don't we don't require of the average person in the pew. Um, but if if you're willing to take on the responsibility of leadership, these are these are the these are the requirements for that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the the Matt Chandler story. Um, I, I'm not super familiar with it myself, um, so I'm not going to try to get too into the realm of yeah. something I'm not informed on. But um, I, I just know a little bit, and I'm not. It's not obvious to me whether or not this is like a Matt Chandler problem. And just for those listening, um, you can research the story yourself, but it goes something like this. He was messaging a woman who was not his wife on some social media platform and the elders of the church, uh, so- someone in the church brought attention to that. And then the elders reviewed the messages and determined mm-hmm. that he was having too much familiarity with her, although he hadn't crossed into like uh, any kind of affair or any kind of sexual misconduct. Uh, they just didn't like the, 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 the nature of the messages like it just seemed a little bit too familiar for uh between him and a woman who wasn't his wife um that's pretty much what i know and again like you can find all of the information anywhere and you know you can correct the record on me if you need to but the 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 thing that i'm not sure of here is isn't it possible to coach a con a congregation into creating a culture where um they just have an unrealistic version or an unrealistic vision of what a Christ-like character in an actual human being looks like. Um, Because I don't know if it's possible for a church leader to walk with no dissonance at all. Um, You know, every person has some issue, some set of things. And it's merely a matter of surrounding them with the right set of circumstances mm-hmm. where you can call that thing forward. There was a, a an illusionist or a mentalist. His name's Darren Brown. He did a, a whole uh, documentary series where he, he had uh, somehow managed to get a hold of four different people, just average people. And he set up the circumstances around them over the course of months um, specifically so that he could get them to push someone an innocent person off of a building and as far as they knew they were pushing them to their death and three out of four of them did it wow and yeah and that's also another thing that's just you know publicly available you can check it out but what that's illustrating in my mind is that there are snakes in everyone and oh yeah it's it's hard for me to come to grips with um a, a church culture wherein that's not allowed for even at the highest levels of leadership. So for, from my perspective, what I've always done is I'll look at Christian leaders and I'll say, okay, this guy seems like he's really great, but he probably has issues somewhere. Mm-hmm. He's got issues, maybe some major issues. Maybe those major issues would turn into really major issues if the right things set themselves up around him. Yeah. And so anytime there's like a fall to me, it doesn't feel like they fell because they were never elevated. Like, you know, and, and so uh, yeah, that's kind of, uh, what do you think about all of that? Is that, am I missing a point here or is, 
No, I don't. I don't think you're missing any any point. I th- so, number one, I think it is healthy for us um, to have a proper perspective on Christian leaders that they are humans, <laughs> right? That they that you're right that all of us there's there's a snake, right? There's there's there there are things in me that the Holy Spirit is still rooting out and working on and, and reshaping and remolding to be like Jesus. Um, the, I think the question comes in in terms of leadership, and we'll go back to Matt Chandler, because I think, honestly, I think this is a beautiful example of what this should look like, right? Uh, he was confronted with something. Now, uh, again, you guys can go and look at it, but like, he was DMing with a woman on Instagram. Both Matt's wife and this woman's husband knew that they messaged with one another. They're good friends, all that kind of thing, right? Uh, there was there nothing inappropriate in any of the messages. Again, the the elders just felt like there was a a level of familiarity with someone who wasn't his wife, a frequency of messages, uh, and a level of familiarity that was unbecoming as a pastor right? That could be misconstrued. Now, in response to this, what Matt Chandler didn't do was say, I haven't done anything wrong. Who do you guys think you are to call me into question on this? What Matt Chandler did was get up in front of his church, say, here is the issue that has been raised that the elders have have brought to my attention, that another member of our congregation brought to my attention. We've evaluated it. We've talked it through. Uh, the, they believe that there's a level of familiarity that should not be there. As your pastor, I, I want to apologize to you. I submit to their leadership. I submit to, um, you know, to their, their, um, their input on this and recognize that maybe there was a blind spot there that I was unaware of. And so in response to that, I'm going to take some time away from teaching here at the church, and I'm going to seek the Lord, and I'm going to, you know, do my best to, you know, I feel I'm, a, I, I, I need to, I, I repent. I feel like I've embarrassed my family. That I've embarrassed, you know. He, he, he was humble in his response, right? And to me, that's the thing. Like, if you look in the Old Testament, for example, the thing that separated Saul and David was not that David was pious and holy and never messed up, and Saul did. It wasn't their behavior that separated them. It was their response when confronted with their sin that separated them. And for us as leaders, that's the case for us too. If, if Look, Scripture is clear that if I say that I have no sin, then I am a liar, mm-hmm. right? And that, that the Spirit of God is not in me. And so it's not whether or not I sin, it's what I do in response to that. It's what I do when either when I'm confronted by it, by either the Holy Spirit or by a, a, a confidant that I'm, I'm, you know, in relationship with and accountability with, or whether it be more like the situation with Matt Chandler, where there was someone else from the congregation who became aware of it and confronted them as their pastor. And, and that's just something for Matt Chandler as well, that just a member of his congregation right, would feel empowered enough to come to him right. and say, hey, this is going on. This is really bothering me. You know, 
Man, how many of us as pastors place ourselves in a position where people in our church wouldn't even feel comfortable yeah, confronting yeah. our sin? You know, so there's a level of humility there that I think is worth applauding and worth emulating in terms of Matt Chandler. Yeah. Uh, and so I want to acknowledge that uh, and then just say for us as well that that's the thing that we should be striving for, that it's what we do in response to our sin. Um, and, and you know, that, that really matters, that really counts. Yeah, and something like that takes a rock-solid set of elders, though, too, because, for I sure. mean, if you're going to operate from a position of humility and submission to the elders... Um, that's, man, you're, it's so vulnerable to crafting a church governance where the elders are the actual ones in leadership of the church, the actual ones who are shepherding the church, they're shepherding the pastor in that situation. And so Mm -hmm. like, that's a lot of responsibility on them too, to say, okay, we're going to deal with this publicly and we're, we're going to walk him through this, um, man, they got to be on the ball. So yeah. that's, it is a good example, I think, of, of the way the process is supposed to work. It's just that having the right people in place uh, at the moment of walking out that yeah. process, like, man, and, that's and, so important. And I think it speaks to some of these other things that we've been talking about already as well in that as the leaders in that congregation it would have been really easy for them to say, well, this wasn't that big a deal. We're going to, Matt, just go ahead and keep teaching. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to, you know. They're willing to let that thing burn to the ground in order to hold to what they believe the biblical standard is for leaders and for them as elders and for their church, right? So, man, as a pastor, are you willing to not be the pastor of your church, in order to stand up for and defend what you believe is is the biblical mandate and what God has called you to? Are you willing to let that thing burn to the ground in order to reach the lost if that is what it takes, right? And if the answer to those questions is no, then we're not qualified to be leading. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Wow, that's, that's really something. That's that, And that takes a lot of reflection and a lot of, um, you know, sitting down with yourself and asking why you're doing what you're doing and being able to answer that question, answer the why, um, leads you to whether or not you're able to actually do that. And I think it's super important. So I want to, um, we can probably end on this, but I want to open a discussion about musical worship. And I think that these discussions are really important because I actually believe that we're living in a golden age of musical worship. (laughs) So when I say golden age, what I'm referring to is, um, it's, it's more of a, a, strictly with regards to the amount of attention that it gets. So worship music gets more traffic online than even the most popular sermons, and it's not close. Yes. Um, So on the surface, I think that this appears to be a good thing, and maybe it is a good thing. Um, But when we couple this golden age of worship music with the the reality or the idea of biblical illiteracy, I think that we might end up with some kind of something of a problem. now, I don't think that biblical illiteracy is a new thing, and I read a little bit about this um, just in preparation for this this podcast, but um, I, I think that it's been... Here, here's where I landed on it, and I'm, I'm not sold on this idea, but I want to present the idea, and then we'll kind of unpack it. The idea is that biblical illiteracy has been made worse since the second great awakening of the early 19th century and the arise, the, the emergence of the emotional evangelical 
preachers, like preachers who are kind of trying to play on catharsis and like right, right, right. a lot of emotional language, stuff like that. Um, there's a work called Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't, uh, where the author Stephen Prothero says, early Americans didn't just know Jesus. They knew the Sermon on the Mount, often by heart. They believed, as the Reverend John Lathrop of, of uh, Boston Second Church wrote, that the connection between knowledge and faith is such that the latter cannot exist without the former, so that faith cannot exist without knowledge. Mm -hmm. And they were convinced, as historian David Paul Nord put it, that genuine religion was not about miracles, enthusiasm, direct revelation, human will, or even uninformed faith. It was about knowledge, learning, and reading the word. Okay, so how do we juxtapose that with musical worship? I think we do it like this. The question becomes, because I don't think that the golden age of musical worship is bad. Right. I don't think it's right. a bad thing that, that this is getting so much attention. Um, because a lot of these songs, you know, like they're not, they're not theologically corrupt. They're not yeah. biblically inaccurate. Um, okay, so the question is, how might Bible study, servant leadership, and self-sacrificial love change your experience of musical worship? And do you think that we have a tendency to kind of relegate these three things to the clergy? So Bible study, servant leadership, and self-sacrificial love. I want to know how your how you interface with musical worship changes whenever you have those three things in place. Because when I think of those three things, I try to think of things that are like, what are areas of the Christian walk that are not particularly emotional, that are not cathartic, that don't kind of give you the the, the sense of... of uh, you know, rapture, spiritual communion with God, that kind of thing. And, I, and what I think of is Bible study, servant leadership, and self-sacrificial love. Because a lot of those, a lot of times, you know, Bible study can be enjoyable, but for a lot of people, it's not. And for people who are even particularly astute at the Bible, a lot of times it's not enjoyable. And, you know, servant leadership is a lot of times not enjoyable. And so same with self-sacrificial love. But when you, when you wrap these three things into who you are as a Christian, how, how should you expect your the way that you interface with musical worship to change. Mm. Um, so first, let me let me just say, I, I think that it varies by degree, right? Uh, and, and really in the order that you put them, probably. Uh, people probably, by degrees, relegate Bible study to the professional clergy, uh, more than the other two, and then uh, the willingness to engage in those things increases as you go down the list. So few pe fewer people engage in Bible study uh, and, and leave that to the pros, so to speak. Uh, uh, the second one was servant, servant leadership. leadership, right? So, um, you know, probably there are more people in your congregation that are engaged in some form of servant leadership uh, than, than Bible study, right? And then thirdly, self-sacrificial love, uh, I think probably even like the, the percentage goes up a bit, right. even, you know, um, now even with, people who have kids might have some element of self-sacrificial right. love. And, I, yeah. and that's what I was going to say. I think the question then becomes who is my neighbor, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and so, um, we all understand that we should be engaging in self-sacrificial love and probably are to a degree, like if, like you said, if we're parents, um, we, we do that toward our children, at least, um, aspire to that, you know? And so, so I think it, it varies by degree. Um, but yes, there's a sense in which that gets relegated to, well, that's their job to do that because they're paid by the church or, you know, they have a title that, you know, says I'm, you know, reverend or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, 
how that changes how we engage with musical worship. Um, well, man, I think, look, the more you know God and, and look, he has revealed himself to us through his word. So if, if the way in which you are approaching the knowledge of God does not include the study of God's word, uh, I don't know that you are following a biblical pattern for knowing God. Right. 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 Um, you know, and so, um, so God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. To know him is to love him. The more we know him, the more beautiful, the more compelling he becomes. And that changes how we engage in terms of musical worship. Because when we we sing and we recite and we celebrate God's character in nature, the, you know, it, th- then then the truths of his word that we've hidden away in our hearts, they begin to bubble up. Mm-hmm. It's not just the words that I'm singing on the screen or, or out of the right. hymnal or whatever. It's it's the knowledge of God that is in me that is stirred up in response to that as well. Yeah. And, and so, so my capacity for worship expands because yeah. the depth of my relationship with God is is such that it's it's I'm drawing from a much deeper well than just what's on the screen or what the words of the song. Yeah, yeah. So one of the analogies I think that works really well here is you had talked to me before about how old cathedrals are often built and decorated and um, they, they have the trappings of theology built right into yeah. them. And like they tell the story of the gospel just right in their architecture. Right. And I think a lot of uh, like I think of like the Catholic mass and just different uh, more structured orders of service. A lot of times the order of service itself is also telling a story. Yeah. And, and so, but what's cool is the more knowledge of God that you're coming in through the study of his word, you're coming into this space and now the building is speaking to you at a deeper level. And even the, just the process of the service is speaking to you at a deeper level. And all, none of that stuff is available to you if you don't have the the word resident in you before you begin to participate in the process. And I think that one of the things, one of the, unfortunate uh consequences of the seeker sensitive model is that we're we're not we're get we're, we're getting rid of the onion in order to serve cake yeah. um and and what i mean by that is uh it's there's not as many like there are not as many deeper levels of revelation that are available to you inside of a church building as there would have been 800 years ago right and well i you know it, it what that what that process is that process of the the deeper revelation like being able to look at a particular stained glass window and say oh that's this part of the story that they're telling in that particular piece of art or oh the the, the dome represents this part of the story yeah. those kinds of things um what that's really doing is it's 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 showing a change in the ability to appreciate what's in front of you and i think that the same thing applies directly to musical worship too is like in kind of what we were talking about before is like when you have those things in you and then you're you're singing the song it's not just the words like you, you have all these things attached to the words now too yeah and so it takes you to a deeper level and and i don't really know where i'm going with all of that i guess i just uh I want to figure out why it appears to be the case that so many people are able to engage with musical worship, but they're, they're not engaging on the other levels. 
And I don't know if it's because the musical worship is so freely archety- archetypal. Like it's, it's just the, the, the meanings are just served up mm-hmm. at least the surface level right. elements of them are, um, that you could have no biblical literacy whatsoever and you could still get some measure of meaning from it. Um, because it's talking about patterns of meaning that are just out there in the world. Like, you know, like we were saying, self-sacrificial love. Yeah. There, that's a, that's a phenomena that a lot of people have experience with, even if they've never opened a Bible. And so if you have a song that's talking about self-sacrificial love, they can relate to it, but they can't relate to it on the, the deeper level that somebody who's coming in with the, the grand narrative can relate to it. So like as a worship leader, what are some steps that you can take to preserve the, preserve the relatability of the music, but also encourage people to interface with it on the deepest levels. Yeah, man, there's so much here, Michael. Um, (laughs) uh, Number one, as worship leaders, if you're listening to this and you're a worship leader, and by the way, pastors, you are worship leaders, even if you're not on the stage, like singing, um, we must be good stewards in terms of the songs that we're choosing, in terms of like the the knowing our people well enough to know what what seasons they're in, what truths about who God is that they need to sing and celebrate and know more deeply, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, you know, uh, we we can't just choose the latest thing because it, we like the beat or the melody or the whatever like we it's ministry right and it's discipleship and we have to approach it in that way uh it is look music by its very nature stirs us at at an emotional level it doesn't have to be sacred music even you know Uh, i mean watch any movie and watch a, a particularly emotive scene without the music behind it and look, I mean, it is a completely different experience. Huh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Like, right? Huh. And so there's a power to stir our emotion in music, inherent in music itself. And I believe God created that. I don't think we need to shy away from that. I don't think that's a bad thing. But, but it is possible for us to stir people at an emotional level and only stir them at an emotional level. And we have to, as stewards of those moments, and, and make sure that we are not stopping there, that I'm not trying to just create feel-good moments in a service, but that I am pressing into and pushing toward a deeper revelation of who God is. Um, and so... Uh, you know, there's that aspect of it as being good stewards, as worship leaders. The other thing is, man, look, and I know analogies break down, but here's here's the analogy that I'm going to use. Um, I would much rather eat a piece of cake than a Brussels sprout. But I know in terms of my long-term health, <laughs> yeah. I need to be eating the Brussels sprouts. That's not to say I can't have some cake, mm-hmm. but that cannot be the whole of my diet. And again, I know analogies, they only go so far, metaphors break down. But in terms of our spiritual diet, 
music is cake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the the study and pursuit of God's word and not the knowledge of who God is is Brussels sprouts, right? Mm-hmm. It's meat in that. I mean, they, even even scripture uses this idea of milk and meat and need, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't want to say you don't ever have cake, and I don't want to downplay the role of worship. Man, I look, I, I've been involved in worship leadership for twenty five years of my life. Um, I love it. I love. I think it's valuable. I think if done well and done rightly, it can help people to see and know God more deeply. We are able to put words on people's lips that they'll be singing throughout the week. Um, they'll remember that song you sang on Sunday well before they'll remember the sermon, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And and so so it has great value. Um, and but it is not. Uh, it's not a complete diet in terms of our spiritual life. Uh, and so um, we we have to be pointed. And it can feel, I think that maybe one of the reasons why people get um, stuck in the extent of their relationship with Christ being their relationship with worship music is because it can feel like you're you're getting full on mm-hmm. it. But it, it's just like, I, I like the analogy of the cake and the Brussels sprouts because sometimes what's missing is like a micronutrient in the way that, you know, when you are, you're taking it in, it's like, okay, well, I'm getting everything I need because it feels like I'm getting everything I need. And I'm not going to know that the micronutrient is missing until months down the road, whenever I have this right. deficiency that shows up. And then it's like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not getting everything that I need out of this particular practice. Yeah. And so, and you know, that's, that's, that responsibility falls on the worship leader. And it also falls on the people who on the congregation, because I, I would imagine as a worship leader, you're aware of the fact that it's really easy to stir up the the catharsis because of the the universality of the way that we connect with music. And so if your motivation is that, if your motivation isn't ushering people yeah. into a deeper relationship with God and your motivation is uh, the feedback, then you would just stop at the, at, at the appeal to, to, positive emotion because you know how easy it is to get there. And the more you master your craft, the better you are at evoking it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I had a thought. And, and I'm, so going back to, so Colossians 3.16. Um, let me get there. Yeah. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Right. That's that's where Paul starts with this. And, and uh, so um, other translations say that, the word of Christ, that the word of Christ might dwell richly in you. Okay, so that's where Paul kind of starts this thought. And then he says, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. So there, there's the, the the word of God, right? The teaching of the word of God, the living in relationship with one another and community with each other. And then he says this, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. It's not an either or, it's a both and thing. Um but the goal of all of that is so that the word of Christ might dwell richly in you, or as that NLT says, that that the knowledge of Christ might, in all its fullness, might dwell in you, right? And so, um, that's got to be our aim. That's got to be our goal. Uh, and um, well, and again, it has to be a complete diet. And going back to your micronutrient kind of thing, like, it, do I need to 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 worship God in song and 
and and engage emotionally and and yeah i need to do that that's a part of who i am that's a part of what god has created in me like uh any love relationship will express itself in emotion right mm-hmm. there will be those those moments of of rapture and intimacy and you know th- and they're needed right the, to to laugh with and cry with and celebrate with it you know um but then there's there's also that very real like let me tell you about what's on my mind yeah yeah you know uh and so in terms of in terms of walking with god i think the gathered community singing together and 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 the that the emotion that's evoked by worship and all of that that's that's one aspect of relationship but then there's also the reading god's word and go, getting to know the mind of christ sitting in stillness and listening to his voice and look and then and then having the biblical knowledge to go oh what i what I believe the Lord is speaking to me lines up with who he's revealed himself to be in his word. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. I, I think that's, that's wise. Um, this, this question probably would be easier for you to answer. And I think you answered it to some degree in your statements just now, because, um, because of your background in leading worship, uh, if you flip this and you say, say you have like a pastor or members of a congregation who are like, they don't, put any emphasis on musical worship and they're just like all about study they're, and they're kind of uh, put off by the emotionalism involved mm-hmm. in congregational worship. What, what exactly would those people be missing in their, in the richness of their relationship with God? I mean, is it, is it simply the, the things that you stated about like the, the laughter and the love and the joy and the things that come with like a, a regular sort of human to human intimate relationship? Is it, is it those things or are there any other pieces like that you might use to motivate somebody who maybe hasn't been taking musical worship seriously enough? What, what would they be missing? Well, I, I, first of all, I would say if you don't take it seriously, then you're, you're not taking the word of God seriously. I mean, there's an entire book of songs, right? That's what the Psalms are. There's an entire collection of songs in the word of God that were written and sung and celebrated by God's people for, you know, for the majority of human history at this point, right? They've been, we've been singing these songs and reading them and reciting them for, you know, all the way back to the earliest days of God's people and God's revelation to his people. And so, if we think that 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 singing is not important to God, we've not read the scriptures, right? And so, so if you're if you're the kind of person that goes, ah, you know, and I, but look, look, God's put a pretty pretty big emphasis on it, right? You know, and, and in the New Testament, we just read from Colossians, and Paul's instruction was to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and you know, and so so they're important things. And so if you're not able to engage with the Spirit of God and engage in worship through music, well, maybe you need to reevaluate what's going on. You know, what is it, what is it, what is it in you that resists loving God in that way? What is it in me that might be resistant to uh, abandoning myself to a moment and being lost in God's presence? 
telling him that I love him, singing, you know, look, we write songs about what we love, if you're a songwriter, right? And we sing, like, if we listen to music that we identify with. And and um, even people who don't particularly love music, they got a song. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's tied to a memory. It's tied to a particular point in their life. It's a, you know, maybe it was the, you know, the song for them and their, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend when they were, you know, we, we connect with it. God created it that way. I mean, and, um, why do we make music to start with? Yeah. Right. There's, yes, birds sing but they're not writing songs. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, why do we write songs? You know, e- even that, the, the impulse itself stems from our capacity and design toward worship. Yeah. And, and so if we're not engaging in it, uh, in a in a meaningful way, or if there's something in us that resists that, I would say that 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 is that is part of our sinful impulse, and it's true on the other side too. If you're a person that's like, oh, I'm all into this emotional part of this, I really love worship music, but I don't really connect with God through reading the Word. I don't really connect with God through studying Scripture. Well, you're only getting part, right? What is it in you that's resisting that? What is it that God is wanting to 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 develop in you or shape in you, you know, and so no matter which side of this you're on, if you're resistant to, to engaging like fully in, in song and, 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 and letting down your guard and letting those feelings be there and letting those emotions be stirred and letting those in, in, uh, you know, expressing love to God in a, in a, in an abandoned kind of, you know, you know, what is it that God's trying to shape in you that's 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 lacking? And and on the other side of that, if you're someone who finds it difficult to sit down and and engage with God's word or find a place of stillness and silence and quiet and listen and sol- you know, what is it that what is it that's deficient? We all have that. We all have deficiencies. It's just a question of whether or not we're letting God in, engage us in those and reshape and remold and, and make us like Jesus. Yeah, that's a that's a great place to great couple of questions to ask yourself and reflections to kind of look at in yourself and to see kind of where you're at on your walk. And I think that's a great place to wrap this up. Hey, I appreciate you all for listening today. This is the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.